Hello all and the heartiest of welcomes to another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that seeks out and recounts for your listening some of the more obscure and often forgotten tales that the UK and Ireland has in its dark corners. Seeking out and bringing you these tales is myself, Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. I am as ever thrilled having you folks joining me here today and I hope that as you hear me, things are good and well for you. Now before we continue this week, I have extra special thanks to pass on to all of you guys because it's this week that total listens for the show have passed the 2 million mark, which is incredible to me that is, I'm blown away and I'm proper humbled. When I began doing the show almost 2 years ago now, I couldn't have even imagined getting near to that kind of number, that's an unreal figure that is to me, and yet here we are and it's all thanks to you guys. Your support and your feedback, plus the same from the community of friends and fellow hosts that I found myself part of, well it's been fabulous throughout and it's very appreciated, so thanks very much all. I'm not going to go full on Paltrow here at all, I'm really not, I just wanted to express my gratitude to you all. Thanks very much also this week to both returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, that's Matthew Hewitt, Anita Mitchell, Lisa Hines, Kelly Delaney and Adele Moll. I'm looking your way there. It's very kind of you folks, that elusive bonus episode that I have been mentioning for what seems like weeks now, because it has been weeks, it is coming shortly, I do promise. In a couple of weeks or so as well, look out for a poll on the show's social media for all of you guys to get involved, so you can choose the bonus episode that becomes available to all on the show's second birthday on the 26th of September. As I did last year, I'm releasing one of the bonus Patreon episodes for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast's second birthday. So if you're a Patreon supporter of the show and you've already heard them, then you've got an advantage. Otherwise, all, it's a case of whichever title sounds the most interesting from reading it. From past feedback that I've had, I do kind of have an idea how that will go if the Patreon supporters have anything to say. But it's completely down to you lot, that is. Have a look out for it, but I shall of course shout out about it via here nearer the time. If you want to get that advantage also and become a supporter yourself, then it's easier than a spot the guilty competition in a room with just OJ Simpson and Bill Cosby in it. You just head over to the Patreon site and look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there. You'll see the show logo with a creepy hand and you can be away, or you could just head over and use the link in the episode show notes that's there every week because I'm good like that. So I'm back in the writing chair myself for this week's episodes. Yeah, that's what I said, episodes. After last episode's tale from Julia. That one, your friendly neighbourhood Frankenstein I called it, although I said it was called the Bovington Poisoner. It went down an absolute storm, I thought. What a tale that was, isn't it, eh? Massive thanks once again to Julia for her hard work. I love doing a more familiar case like that. And look out for some future stuff from Julia featuring here on the show again in a couple of months. There's a shout out once again there folks. If you fancy researching and writing up a case like Julia or any of the other listeners who've ever contributed to episodes in past series, then by all means get in touch. I can say hand on heart there are some fascinating tales in the pipeline through what's been suggested I tell you. But this week we have the case that I've been working on. The case in question this week takes us back to the late 1980s and to somewhere that we haven't visited for a long time on the show, 
ever since the second ever episode of the show actually, The Island of Jersey in the English Channel. The episodes, yes, as I said before, the plural. This week, the episodes have coldness, guilt, deception and brutality, and range in locations from not just Jersey, but as far diverse as from South America to Europe, and also spanning a number of years. It also contains descriptions of a crime that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is always advised whilst listening. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at part one of a case I've entitled The Grave at Grave Delec. So as I said at the outset, we visited the island of Jersey before on the show, way back almost two years ago now in the second ever episode to look at the case of Edward Paisnell, the Beast of Jersey. Now Paisnell's crimes were so chilling and of such horror that they're never likely to be forgotten by long-time residents of the island and anybody reading up on the case, basically. Check out the episode if it's one that you've not heard of, and, wow, believe me, have a look at the chilling photographs of it. It's proper stuff of nightmares, that is. But almost 20 years after Paynell's reign of terror was brought to an end, the late 1980s brought another infamous crime to the island that's still remembered by folk who live there to this day. And we'll come to it shortly, of course. But first, let's have some stats that I managed to find. Now there's very little really this week because I'm not Wikipedia or anything. And are you like me, when I listen to episodes of these kind of shows, I start googling places or names that are mentioned right away really. It's human nature now, it's what you do, isn't it? You're better off doing that to read up on Jersey. All I'll share here about it is that although it's the largest of the Channel Islands, The whole island is actually smaller than Greater London in size, at just 9 miles by 5, and it's undoubtedly nicer to travel through too after the absolute mare that I had when I was travelling on the tube there down in London recently. Former Formula 1 driver Nigel Mansell lives and has a car museum there, and the new Superman on screen, Henry Cavill, was actually born in Jersey. It's got miles and miles of beaches that are still dotted with the remnants of wartime coastal defences remaining from when Jersey became the only part of the British Isles to be Nazi-occupied during the Second World War. So they worked well, didn't they? It also has a reputation as a bit of a millionaire's paradise and was for many years a favourite of people to offshore bank because of its well-known status as a tax haven, although in more recent years that's changed somewhat. As I said, I know they're quite boring stats this week, but I don't suppose it can always be Kurt Cobain proposing or the cop from the village people, can it? So, way back in October 1987, were you alive back then? If you were and you live in the UK, perhaps you'll remember it as being the month that the UK and France suffered a violent extratropical cyclone the day after BBC weatherman Michael Fish said, oh yeah, it's going to be fine. Or in entirely different contexts, it was the month of Black Monday, the notable stock market crash on Wall Street and around the world, and it was the month of the second national march on Washington for lesbian and gay rights, which led to October the 11th each year being National Coming Out Day. But our story this week isn't involved with dodging hurricanes or pride marching or anything. It begins with a lavish meal at what was at the time one of the island's premier restaurants, the Seacrest Hotel, 
in the Jersey resort of Petit Port. The foursome sat around table 17 that evening in a secluded alcove near the French windows that overlooked Jersey's Corbier lighthouse and the rugged cliffs that it's situated upon, seemed to be enjoying a family night out, obviously with some celebration. Champagne and wine was flowing like it was going out of fashion, and at a glance it would appear that they were just another example of the top quality clientele who frequented and enjoyed the restaurant. However, staff at the Seacrest that evening the night of Saturday, October the 10th, 1987, soon began to notice a definite and growing tension emanating from the three men and woman who made up the foursome. As the alcohol continued to flow, raised voices were heard from table 17 on more than one occasion, and the middle-aged woman who made up the party just began to get louder and more condemning, directed alternately at the two younger men who sat with her, who appeared to be her adult sons. She then turned her frustrations towards staff at the Seacrest about the quality of the meal that she'd been served, and after the £130 bill for the evening had been settled by one of the younger men, and the foursome had had a last drink together at the bar, it was fast approaching midnight and none of the staff were really sorry to see the four leave and drive off in a grey citron, such had been the bad atmosphere. The foursome at table 17 that evening were Jersey residents Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell and their two sons Roderick and Mark, who'd flown into Jersey the previous evening to celebrate their mother's 48th birthday, although this was actually another five days away. As both Roderick and Mark only had the weekend free from their respective careers as a captain in the Royal Green Jackets Regiment of the British Army and a high-flying London-based financier respectively though, They'd hopped on a plane the previous evening and headed out on that Saturday to take their mother and father out that evening so they could celebrate Elizabeth's birthday as a family, which had begun earlier by the brothers presenting their mother with a bottle of champagne each, both of which had been drunk before the foursome set off to the restaurant. Never the textbook image of a happy, harmonious family, though. The mood in the Silver Citroen was one of a definite tense atmosphere that evening, as the car, driven by Mark Newell, sped the short distance from the Seacrest Hotel to the family home, a large £82,000 bungalow at 9 Clos d'Atlantique in the parish of St. Brillard. The following morning, a family friend of the Newells, Maureen Ellum, arrived bright, early and unexpectedly at number 9 to deliver a bouquet of flowers to Elizabeth. Maureen and her husband David had become close friends with the Newells after the latter had sold the Ellums their former home, the Crow's Nest, the previous year. After knocking on the door for a considerable period of time, she was greeted by a dishevelled, bleary-eyed Roderick Newell. They made small talk on the doorstep, with Roderick Newell not inviting Maureen in telling her tersely that his parents were still both soundly asleep following the previous evening's celebrations, which had become a late night out. So before she left, Maureen told him to place the flowers on his mother's bed, adding with a smile, then when she wakes up, she'll think she's died in the night. Lovely that, Maureen, you chilling old bugger. By the following day, Monday the 12th of October, the brothers had both left the island. 
22-year-old Roderick had returned back to the UK mainland after his weekend leave to his regimental HQ at Sir John Moore Barracks in Winchester in Hampshire, whilst 21-year-old Mark had headed back to his London flat to return to his job at a merchant bank in the city of London. As the days passed that week, however, it came to be noticed that the usually sociable Nicholas and Elizabeth weren't being quite as sociable as the Jersey High Society set that they'd made themselves part of had come to expect from them. It had begun that Monday with Maureen not receiving the expected telephone call from Elizabeth to thank her for the flowers, which she'd left for a bit, putting it down to Elizabeth being hungover and caught up in a mix of that and excitement at having the boys over and it having just simply slipped her mind. When the couple missed some of the normal gatherings and pastimes that they usually enjoyed as the week went on, plus a number of appointments however, it was at first passed off with only the odd remark amongst their friends that it was strange for them not to appear without any apology or explanation. They knew that the Newells were scheduled to head to their Spanish villa, where they spent a large portion of each year the following week, but they thought it strange that they'd not said goodbye to any of their friends before leaving early for an extended break. When repeated attempts throughout the week to telephone the couple by various friends of theirs met with no reply, finally, six days after they'd last been seen, on Friday the 16th of October, Maureen's husband David went around to number 9, Clos d'Atlantique. Approaching the driveway, he noticed Nicholas Newell's 32-foot yacht, the Chanson de Lec, was still fixed on its moorings, and the Newell's red Peugeot car was still in the garage to the side of the bungalow. Using the front door key that the Elms had to the property to water plants and collect mail for them whenever the Newell's were away, David entered the bungalow and was immediately struck by the stifling heat in there as the central heating was turned up full. Shouting around for Nicholas and Elizabeth, he got no answer, but then as he took in the surroundings, David began to wonder exactly where his friends could be. They'd been due to dine together the previous evening, and he couldn't believe that the Newells would just change plans without informing them if they were heading off somewhere spur of the moment or to Spain earlier than planned. Plus there were no signs of them having left for a break. There was several days worth of unopened mail on the floor, just inside the front door, granted, but the central heating was on full, breakfast items lay still out on the table and fresh groceries were in the fridge, an ironing board was set up ready to use, and through the back window there was washing hanging out on the line. A further look around revealed the couple's toothbrushes and Nicholas's shaving gear still in the bathroom. It's not what you leave if you're planning a trip away somewhere, and you clean up for the burglars before you go, don't you? As my mum always used to say. David reported his findings to Maureen, and together they telephoned Mark Newell in London. Mark could offer no explanation for his parents' whereabouts, and telling him of their unease about the situation and how out of character it was for his parents to have gone missing and incommunicado for such a length of time, Maureen and Mark went through together all of the known appointments and engagements that Elizabeth had had scheduled in a diary for that week. Everything appeared to tally, but further investigation by Maureen over the next 24 hours revealed that Elizabeth had indeed missed all of these. In fact, between them, Nicholas and Elizabeth had that week missed doctor and dentist appointments, 
an appointment at a leading jewellers on the island to collect an expensive watch that Elizabeth had ordered, games of badminton, and of course, the dinner date with the Ellums the previous evening. Mark, meanwhile, had contacted his brother Roderick at his barracks, and together both sons had contacted friends and relatives of their parents in both the UK and Spain to see if they'd had any contact with Nicholas and Elizabeth. When these culminated efforts drew a blank, Maureen decided that the only option was to inform the police and reported 56-year-old Nicholas and 48-year-old Elizabeth as missing persons. A report was logged and the Jersey police headquarters in St Helier were also informed. By Monday the 19th of October, both Roderick and Mark were back in Jersey, Roderick having flown in the previous day to be met at the airport by David and Maureen Ellum. By now, David and Maureen were completely alarmed, convinced that something terrible had happened to Nicholas and Elizabeth, and they took Roderick immediately from the airport to Nine Clost d'Atlantique. Here, the three made yet another search of the property, which Maureen, knowing that Elizabeth was a notoriously untidy person, thought to be unusually tidy. The flowers that she bought a friend a week previously were dead in a vase on top of the fridge, and eagle-eyed Maureen noticed that the black hearth rug, which was normally on the floor in front of the fireplace in the living room, was missing. The suspicions were further raised when Maureen headed into the master bedroom, and her attention was drawn by a stain on the carpet near to the door that she took to be a coffee stain. Closer examination of this revealed that the carpet here was fluffed up and was found to have been pulled back and replaced by using nails to affix it. She also noticed that unusually the bed was freshly made and she could smell the aroma of clean laundry. Elizabeth never made the bed until just before she got into it and nobody had slept there at all. Followed by Roderick driving his father's car the Ellums headed straight to police headquarters at Rouge Boulon in St Helier, the island's capital, where at 4.40pm that Sunday afternoon, Roderick Newell officially reported his parents as missing persons. Over the course of the next day and the following Tuesday, Detective Inspector Graham Nimmo and Detective Sergeant Jim Adamson of Jersey Police interviewed both brothers who told him that their parents had been fine and in good spirits when they'd last seen them. They recounted how they'd drunk two bottles of champagne with their parents before heading out for dinner, and after leaving the Seacrest Hotel late on the previous Saturday, the four had travelled back to Nine Clost Atlantique, with Mark driving his silver Citroen as he largely didn't drink. Arriving back there shortly after midnight, Nicholas had opened a bottle of scotch and further drinks had flown, before Roderick and Mark had left the house at about 2.30am and headed back to Mark's island home, La Falaise, where both brothers were staying. Roderick and Mark had headed back over to Closter Atlantic early the following morning, but found their parents to be still asleep, unsurprising, you think, after such a heavy sesh the night before. They'd collected the flowers from Maureen, and when the folks had woken up, the foursome had lunched together, and gone straight back onto the ale by all accounts, washing lunch down with two bottles of white wine, before the boys had left their parents in good health, and went to catch their afternoon flights back to the UK mainland. The only thing that they could volunteer as to a possible explanation as to where their parents may be, 
was that they often went for long walks, particularly around the many coastal paths and sand dunes that Jersey has plenty of. They thought perhaps something had happened to both of them while they were out walking, and as it was also that week that was the week of the infamous 1987 hurricane, and France and the Channel Islands and the UK had all been badly affected by it, the brothers feared that their parents may have been caught up in this storm and voiced concerns they may have even been blown over a cliff. It was reported later though that from the off, police were suspicious of the brothers. There were slight details of each's story when they were spoken to separately that differed. Detective Inspector Nimmo thought that the level of concerns shown by both sons over the mysterious disappearance of their parents was a lot less than would have been expected in the circumstances. He had no evidence of murder yet, or even that any crime had indeed occurred, for it was only a missing persons inquiry, but his Bergerac-like instincts, Jersey, did you see what I did there, told him that Nicholas and Elizabeth had come to some harm, and even though it had been Roderick who had officially reported his parents as missing, he thought that the brothers knew a lot more than they were letting on. So later that afternoon, Detective Inspector Nimmo and Detective Sergeant Adamson searched the Newell's bungalow with Roderick and Mark. Nothing out of the ordinary was found or was there any signs of any ransacking or robbery. As we've said, the bungalow was relatively tidy. The Newell's luggage for their impending trip to the Spanish villa was in cases in the spare bedroom and there were no obvious signs that any foul play had occurred there. The only items of note that appeared to be missing from the house were Nicholas's wallet and Elizabeth's handbag, and from the appearance of the property, the breakfast items laid out on the table, washing out on the line, it would have seemed that the couple had left the house intending to be only away for a short period. But they'd instead not been seen for eight days now, ever since their sons had left both following their lunch to return back to the UK, and indeed, items were found at the house that supported parts of the brothers' account. A bottle of malt whiskey with three used glasses was found on the hostess table in the living room and there were two empty bottles of champagne on the utility room floor, supporting the story that they'd given about the drinks that the foursome had had on the Saturday evening. Yet there were no signs of the empty wine bottles that they'd supposedly drunk on the Sunday at lunch. No clothing belonging to Nicholas or Elizabeth was found to be missing either, so wherever they were... They were in the clothing that they'd worn to go out for dinner that Saturday evening, a blue three-piece suit and a floral dress. That evening, a conference between Jersey CID officers led to the investigation being stepped up and an incident room was opened. It was still at that time a missing persons inquiry, but there was a common feeling amongst the investigating team that this was going to end in tragedy. A check of ports on the airport had revealed no trace of either Newell Senior travelling away from the island, plus their boat was still there, their car was still there, and all of their clothes were still there. The following day, a mass search of the coastal and inland areas of the island got underway, and although Jersey is only 45 miles square in total, this still represented a huge task to undertake. Well, you wouldn't want to mow that, would you? House-to-house inquiries also hit the ground running, and missing person posters containing passport photographs of Nicholas and Elizabeth were printed and distributed en masse throughout the island, with appeals also being made on radio and television. 
Now, a copy of this missing person poster, if you head over to the show's Instagram page, a copy of that picture will be up there now if you want to see what they look like. Whilst this routine inquiry was put into place and got underway, a look into the lives and backgrounds of the missing couple and their sons also got underway in tandem. Perhaps something would jump out to investigators, some slight clue maybe would be found that may point as to their possible whereabouts. Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell had met more than 25 years before in Scotland, where both hailed from, and were to all who knew them a devoted couple to each other. Nicholas's family were wealthy, having amassed a fortune from the patenting, production and sale of fixtures and fittings used within the shipbuilding industry, and when he and his twin brother Stephen were born in 1931, they were born into a life where they were showered with whatever material goods they wished for, and went to the finest public schools, money being no object. At the same time, their parents were so wrapped up in each other that they had little time for the twins, whose care and upbringing was left majorly to a succession of nannies or their paternal grandparents when they weren't away at boarding school. The twins were expected upon leaving education to follow into the family tradition of engineering. While Stephen complied with this and went on to remain in Scotland running his own successful engineering business, Nicholas never seemed to share the interest or indeed the work ethic of his brother. Although he was content enough to live off the wealth that he'd come from, Nicholas had gone to St Andrews University in the early 1950s to study history, having a vague notion of a career in education in mind. His years of good schooling had left him well-spoken and knowledgeable, certainly smart enough to do well, but with it also an emotionless nature and condescending, almost arrogant attitude that meant as a result he was not a very well-liked person. Coming from wealth also, he'd never be the type of person who you'd find rooting through the bins behind Poundland to make ends meet, which he knew, and so his heart was never really in teaching. He was to ultimately qualify as one, but he's remembered as being a strict disciplinarian who more than one person has said of, he inflicted education upon pupils rather than taught it. It was whilst teaching at New Park Preparatory School in St Andrews that he met Elizabeth Nelson, a trainee teacher of modern languages who was nine years his junior, and the spark between them was instantaneous. So attracted were they to one another that she broke off her existing engagement to junior doctor Michael Hill and began a relationship with Nicholas Newell. The families of both Nicholas and Elizabeth were not keen on this pairing whatsoever. Her family didn't warm to him very much at all and considered the relationship to be a total mismatch, whereas the elder Newell family, who were by all accounts well connected within the world of Freemasonry and with senior members of the Scottish judiciary and secret handshakes and all this bollocks, you know, they considered that Nicholas was settling for someone who was far below his social class, although the Nelson family were wealthy themselves. Yet despite several words and attempts from each family to sabotage the relationship, and why people feel they should stick the whore in with these things, I really will never know, the couple were clearly happy enough together for them to marry in 1963 and set up home in Motherwell. A son, Roderick, had arrived in 1965, followed by Mark just 18 months later, and by that time, the Newells were getting itchy feet up in Scotland. 
Always having been a keen sailor, Nicholas now hit upon the idea of sailing to the West Indies to begin a new, more prosperous life, and began to plan for this endeavour. After all, money was no object, and both he and Elizabeth had inherited a large amount of money each from their respective parents. They bought a yacht, which was christened Rodmark, and in 1967, the Newells, complete with Nanny to look after the children, set off on their voyage. They got as far as the Channel Island of Jersey, where they stopped overnight to get supplies for their travels, when the nanny took ill shortly after they'd set off again, and they were forced to return there. They never left, instead falling head over heels in love at an instant with the place. A large bequeathment to Elizabeth from the sale of one of her father's companies, paid for their first home on the island, Martello Cottage, in St. Brillard's Bay, whilst the remainder paid for their lifestyle, alongside an amount that was reserved for investments. Nicholas had received a similar amount from his father, and at one stage during the late 1960s, the couple had in excess of a quarter of a million pounds in shares alone in a model car manufacturing company, Delesny. He only taught at his own convenience, and she only ever sporadically, Instead, both preferring to be a couple of leisure and to live off inheritances and investments as they hobnobbed with their equally wealthy friends and neighbours. By all accounts, though, the Newells were as good at investing as Jerry and Kate McCann were at looking after their kids, and time and again lost money after disastrous financial investments. A plummet in their Delesny share value forced them to sell Martello Cottage and move to a hilltop home in the Jersey area of Grave de Lec, known as the Crow's Nest. Now looking at pictures of the place, it's clear that despite whatever money they'd lost to have to move there, they were in no way on the bones of their arse, because it looks massive, it looks as big as an Ikea in pictures. You'd also think that any losses that run into the thousands would teach people to curb their extravagance a bit and go forward with caution, but nope, if they had it, Nicholas and Elizabeth would spend it. With money spread over several bank accounts worldwide, over the years they bought a luxury Spanish villa in the town of Javier, between Valencia and Alicante, a succession of yachts, a state-of-the-art computer system, they ate out more than a food critic does, Elizabeth spent her days lunching and playing tennis or badminton or shopping, and she had so much jewellery that Mr T would think she looked daft. The couple lived the proper good life and did pretty much whatever they wanted, carefree. Occasionally, whenever a bad investment would result in a downturn in the family finances, and Nicholas needing to find a teaching position at a Jersey school to help maintain this lifestyle, he'd do this only half-heartedly confident in the knowledge that their fortunes would change, which inevitably they did. Then it would be to hell with teaching and back to buying all manner of glittering shite and spending months at a time at this Spanish villa. Here, Nicholas was never happier than when he was indulging in his favoured pastime, writing. He considered himself to be a talented writer, and whilst he did write several works of fiction, including a couple of novels, a murder mystery and several plays, the only things he was to ever have published were a number of factual pieces, articles for magazines such as The Countryman. His fictional work was rejected by publishers time and again, yet he would continue unabated in this pastime. 
He was never disturbed by Elizabeth during this time because she was always off out with friends lunching or playing badminton, tennis. She was pretty much an all-round sportswoman. And the boys? Well, to Nicholas and Elizabeth, the boys may as well not have existed. Whilst Nicholas and Elizabeth made sure that their comparative wealth led to their own good times, they always put themselves first and foremost and their two sons came a very clear second. Nicholas had not really wanted to be a father at all, as he didn't like children. He must have been some teacher, he must have been, mustn't he? And it was only at some insistence from Elizabeth that they'd started a family at all. He was to frequently refer to both Roderick and Mark when discussing them with others as Elizabeth's children and left their upbringing and the care and well-being solely to her, instead preferring to indulge himself in his writing. She in turn left the majority of this upbringing, care and well-being to a succession of nannies that the couple hired or the boys were farmed off to friends and relatives of the couples whenever they got chance, as long as it didn't interrupt Nicholas or Elizabeth's own pastimes. Although the boys were showered with all manner of material goods, it was to occupy them more so than something to find a common ground where any kind of parental-child bond could develop. Like living on the island where you're never more than ten minutes away from the sea at any point, they were left to roam around freely, and became experienced in scuba diving, sailing, a love which Roderick had inherited from his father, windsurfing, all sorts. Any pastime they wished to indulge in, they were given, complete with the best equipment for it. You name it, these kids had it, and the gear for it. Except, by all accounts, the time and affection of their parents. They were too wrapped up in each other and their friends, and spending the wealth that they had like it was going out of fashion. By the time of their disappearance, the Newells' fortune, and this by no means made them stand out in the wealthy set of the tax haven that Jersey was back then, was estimated to be close to a million pounds, a fortune which in the event of their death would pass to Roderick and Mark Newell. It was a strong motive for murder, but could Roderick and Mark Newell have possibly killed their parents? just hours after celebrating Elizabeth's impending birthday. Well, as we've said, and as you've probably gathered, the relationship between the senior Newells and the children was certainly not a close one. Like Nicholas had been as a youngster, both of the boys were sent off to boarding school at a young age, attending first Lockers Park School on the mainland of the UK, before moving on to higher education at what Nicholas considered to be the very best public school in England, boys-only Radley College near Abingdon in Oxfordshire. Founded in 1847, Radley has always had exceptionally high standards of education and has widely encouraged sport, which both brothers were to have differing levels of success with. Not outstanding academically, but by no means thick as two short planks, Roderick had seemed to inherit his mother's all-round sporting prowess and was soon enjoying the rugby, the cricket and the water sports that Radley had on ample offer. Showing particular aptitude for rowing, where he became one of the college's strongest oarsmen, his closest friend and fellow rower was a young man named Charlie Shaw, son of Quint himself, the hard-living Irish actor Robert Shaw. I wonder if when Roderick and Charlie were rowing that they ever considered it a bit cramped and thought 
we're going to need a bigger boat. Couldn't resist that. You've got to get a Jaws gag in when you can, haven't you? At Radley, Roderick also developed a reputation as being a bit of a daredevil and a live wire, and he soon began using recreational drugs, a custom that he'd continue for many years following this. He was loud and brash and lived a full life at school, where he was quite popular, taking more advantage of the bonding peer relationships and life lessons that school brings, rather than developing academically. He believed firmly that life was for living and he did it to the full, adapting a Jack the Lad, easy come, easy go persona. Whilst relations between him and his parents were somewhat strained, he did enjoy a good relationship with his father's twin brother Stephen and his family, and would often spend holidays up in the Newell home near the Scottish village of Rue in Argyll and Boots rather than head home to Jersey. More often than not, his parents would be at the Spanish villa anyway where they spent a considerable part of each year, and which seemed much more important to them than visiting their sons. Whenever they did come to visit, which was only occasionally, they wouldn't stay long at all, and when they were there, there was a noticeable, almost hostility, between the boys and their parents. There was no affection whatsoever, and a definite tension, particularly between Nicholas and the boys. He didn't seem to have a good word to ever say about either, and where praise was not forthcoming, criticism certainly was. Both parents were always pushing the boys to constantly do better, be more successful, and as a result, it made Roderick and Mark competitive towards each other, and for many years not particularly close. When it came to leaving school, Roderick began mentioning, to his father's disappointment who'd assumed that he would attend university, the possibility of pursuing a military career. He'd thrived in Radley's combined cadet force and he excelled at sports and he could see no logical reason that he should not develop both of these within a combined professional basis within the army. He had his sights fixated on joining the Royal Green Jackets, Radley College's regiment, and following a period of time working in Australia, a trip that was paid for by his parents to make him reconsider an army career, he entered Sanders Royal Military Academy at the beginning of 1984 to begin his officer training. Training was successful and Roderick was ultimately to rise to the rank of captain in the Royal Green Jackets. He was a capable yet unremarkable soldier and whilst it's true that his sporting prowess was seized upon by the army and could have accelerated promotion for him, he was to ultimately grow disillusioned and bored with army life. Always seeking excitement and that next big high, he continued his daredevil streak and his fast living bed hopping ways, for his looks and build plus his outgoing loud personality made him highly attractive to many women. Despite his army career and status though, his drug use also continued and Roderick even became a supplier to one of the subordinate members of his platoon who he discovered was heavily dependent on substances. Such a habit leads to financial dire straits inevitably though, and Roderick would often go cap in hand to his mother, claiming that he was struggling to pay mess bills. Elizabeth would sometimes defy her husband and would give Roderick the money that he requested, and on the occasions that she spoke her mind and told him to strap on a pair and sort his own finances out, they were known to come to vicious screaming matches, and on at least one occasion, 
with Roderick punching Elizabeth in a fit of temper. Sporting prowess wasn't the only thing Roderick had inherited from his mother. Mark Newell, meanwhile, was almost the polar opposite of his brother and was very like his father. He played rugby briefly at Radley when he'd attended there, but a severe knee injury ended his playing career, which he hadn't particularly enjoyed playing at all. It was more it was thrust upon him as being expected of a Radleyan. He was not well liked at all amongst his fellow pupils, being considered arrogant and aloof, and he became known for not having a good word to say about most people with particular contempt reserved for his parents, who he was heard on more than one occasion to describe as grossly negligent and utterly incompetent. He was very close to his maternal grandmother though, who he developed a close bond with as her clear favourite, and who he used to visit at half terms whenever possible rather than go home to Jersey. An intelligent child, but again not a particularly academic one, Mark made few friends at Radley and became isolated and withdrawn. He was to remain like this into adulthood, always a very solitary figure, but whereas Roderick was all for fast living and almost as carefree at spending as his parents, Mark Newell was more about making money, which he had a natural flair for. Upon leaving school, he had trained as a futures broker at Barclay Trust in St. Helier, before moving on to Shepherds, a Jersey firm specialising in Eurobonds within a year of qualifying. He worked diligently here, often putting in 18-hour days that he timed around the various worldwide stock markets opening, and as a result earned good commissions and an attractive salary. A move to the world of the City of London Bank Arab et National d'Investment was his next stepping stone, which afforded him an even more attractive salary and he became your stereotypical yuppie. The sharp suits, the flash car, mobile phone so big you had to hold it with both hands, that kind of thing, you know? Whenever I hear the word yuppie, by the way, my first thought is always Del Boy falling through the bar in that brilliant Only Fools and Horses bit. What an absolutely classic scene that still is today, isn't it? So yet even though he was a Gordon Gecko type, Mark still remained introverted and very much a loner his life revolving solely around work. There were no relationships with either sex, no wild nights out at clubs, nothing like that. His sole pastime was working, making money and honing his skills as a broker. By 1986, after some persuading from Elizabeth Newell and begrudgingly recognising his younger son's ability as a financial whiz kid, Nicholas had even allowed Mark to run control of a portion of the family's finances. One of the first things Mark had subsequently advised Nicholas to do was to withdraw from the Lloyds Investment Syndicate that he was a part of, knowing that all was not well in the International Insurance Marketing Association in London because Mark, after all, was perfectly poised to see the warning signs. He in fact had almost pleaded with Nicholas to do this on several occasions, which had led to numerous arguments and Nicholas completely refusing. He was proud of the perceived status being a Lloyds investor gave him, and he actually increased his investments there, perhaps even just simply and pettily to spite his son. As we've already said that the senior Newells were as good at judging decent investments as Kerry Katona is at judging decent husbands, 
The inevitable happened shortly after this. The syndicate they were members of was caught up in a £2 billion asbestosis disaster that swept the insurance world in 1986, and the Newells lost quite heavily. It led to them having to sell the crow's nest in September of that year, but they did make £200,000 profit on this sale. Once the debts had been paid off and they'd bought their new home outright, Nine Closter Atlantique for £82,000, the Newells had regained an account balance that was burgeoning with more than £100,000 ready cash. And now they disappeared. Over the next two weeks then, the entire island was scoured for any signs of the couple, the full Tommy Lee Jones bit, you know, hen house, in house, dog house, all that, and family members of both Nicholas and Elizabeth's side of the family including Nicholas's twin brother Stephen and Elizabeth's elder sister Nan, had arrived on the family to stay and assist police, feeling that they needed to be doing something. Police had visited the Newell Villa in Javier and spoken to all of their expatriate friends there, and they'd spoken to everyone in Jersey who knew Nicholas and Elizabeth, and not a single trace of them had been found as a result. There'd been no sightings of them or evidence of any activity from their bank accounts. The Newell brothers had both returned to the UK by this time, but were to return to Jersey on numerous occasions from the UK to assist in the investigation over the coming weeks and to be interviewed by police, who were by now considering their parents' disappearance to be a suspected murder. What Jersey detectives did not know at that time was that the investigation that had begun as a missing persons inquiry was to be one of, most likely the most complex and exhausting investigation that they'd ever worked on that would span thousands of miles and would even at one point involve the Royal Navy. And in the next episode we shall look at exactly what I mean because this was the perfect place when I'd finished writing the episode to break it up into the two parts. If this is a case that you're already familiar with then I hope you'll tune in for the second part to hear my own spin on it. And if it isn't one that you know, then I hope that you found it interesting and informative enough to still tune in for part two. But I wouldn't blame you if you had a sneaky Google about it. I well would, because it is a fascinating tale. I won't go for my usual long-winded waffle to wrap the episode up as we do. The second part will be out incredibly soon, like tomorrow, and we save the, all the going round the houses for then. Or perhaps it's already out, depending, of course, on when exactly you're listening to this. All that remains for me to say is that for part one of The Grave at Grave de Lec, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast. I thank you very much for joining me here today as always. I wish you good and safe times, and I shall speak to you again very soon. Take care, folks, and goodbye for now.